From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello and welcome to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast that talks about all things uh, happening in uh, the world of astronomy on and off the planet. Uh, my name's Andrew Dunkley and with me, as always, astronomer Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? I'm all right. How have you been? All these cloudy skies have messed you up recently. Uh, they have. They've made for um, uh, what you might call mixed observing, the, those on-again, off-again nights that... Uh, that come when you when you have uh, you know uh, mixed weather uh, in the astronomy game uh, Andrew certainly in in the professional field when you're <clears throat> working to try and gather data on the universe the best nights are either completely clear or completely cloudy and raining because <laughs> if it's if it's a rainy night you can just get on with something else and you know you don't have to keep an eye on the weather yeah okay well there's more of that to come apparently so um, yeah. good luck Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're going to talk about a few things that uh, I, I'm finding uh, quite amazing and, and the first is a revisit to Comet 67P. Uh, they seem to have made a discovery that, that they've um, probably known about for a while but now uh, that it's been sort of rediscovered in a different uh, situation, it, it, it more or less confirms theories, uh, which will be explainable by you because I didn't do a very good job of introducing that. Uh, we'll also be looking at uh, a project where students are going to be uh, involved in experiments on uh, the International Space Station, probably not you know, personally there, but will be involved in, in that kind of thing. And a, a new flexible room is being uh, tested uh, in space, which might uh, make... Um, long-term space travel a little bit easier for uh, for explorers and astronauts we'll uh, we'll learn about that but first fred our um our favorite uh, asteroid uh chumyov gerasimenko I, I knew i had to try you always put me under that microscope and i always fail <laughs> no i think that's i think that's about right <laughs> i um you know i'm sure because this was discovered uh by uh, many years ago, in fact, by two people, one a Russian, one um, from Ukraine. I can't remember which was which, hence the double-barreled name, Chiriomov Gerasimenko. But I am no sure I... Off. That's just, no, no, I'm sure I've been practicing. Uh, I've said it more than once. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'm. Uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, and I, you know, I keep expecting to to get an email in Cyrillic script um, telling me that um, I'm saying it wrong. Funnily enough, I actually did get an email in Cyrillic script last week. Maybe really? that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Professor Watson. Anyway, never mind. Um, the comet uh, 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko, the one that is still being orbited by the Rosetta spacecraft. European mission uh, launched back, if I remember rightly, in 2006. 
Essex uh, and uh, um, has done a sterling job in analysing uh, both the comet's appearance and all the uh, interesting pieces of information that we get from remote sensing of, a, of an object like that. And uh, why is it in the headlines again? Well, because a new discovery, another discovery that seems to bolster the idea, Andrew, that um, the raw materials of life came to Earth from outside, uh, and in particular from possibly comets like this one colliding with the Earth. Back in the, uh, I was going to say the Dark Ages, but uh, I actually, to be more specific, back in the age uh, when the we, the Earth was less than a billion years old, you know, perhaps something like 3.6 billion years ago. Because they've always held this theory up that uh, comets and asteroids uh, were the seeds of life. And yes, they've always said that, you know, one has probably hit Earth and, and that's seeded the planet and here we are. But yeah. um, gathering that evidence up until now has been very, very difficult. Yes, that's right. It, it, is, it is difficult. Um, it's, it's more likely that it wasn't just one that hit the Earth, it was billions that hit the Earth. Mm. And so <clears throat> the Earth was um, well-laced with these complex organic molecules, molecules containing carbon, uh, that, um, that, that suggest that, you know, if you got the right conditions there, a nice warm ocean and lots of carbon-containing molecules, then the reactions would begin that ultimately would give uh, rise to life. Um, we know that, we've known for a long time actually that comets ha are fairly rich in these organic molecules because uh, when uh, comets um, get near the sun, they're, they're, they're basically icy objects and the, the sun's radiation uh, evaporates the ice and what you see is, uh, is a, 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 what's called a plasma tail which glows and you can analyze uh, the light of that and from that you can deduce that there are these organic molecules present in comets but there's nothing like actually going directly to a comet and sampling uh, what is there um, and that's what's happened with Rosetta. Rosetta's analyzing the vapors coming off the comet and the big news is that the, the um, uh, amino acid glycine has been discovered in the comet's atmosphere um, and that is something that's used by living organisms to make proteins. And it's actually there in the cloud of gas and dust that is surrounding the comet. So does um, that suggest that this is just a, this is a commonality, uh, that this is, this is the norm? Uh, because if you've only got one example of it, it doesn't confirm anything. But I suspect there's, um, there's another example of it that the, we're able is. to draw on. Yeah. You're quite right, uh, because um, back in 2006... Um, there was uh, a NASA spacecraft, if I remember rightly, it was called Stardust, but I might be mixing it up with another one. But this spacecraft actually flew through uh, the uh, plasma and dust cloud surrounding a comet, That's a comet right. actually yes. by the name of Wilt 2. It, it looks like Wild 2, but apparently it was um, Dr. Wilt who uh, discovered this comet, built to um, a comet well-known now because of what happened. The spacecraft picked up um, material from built to and then um, was meant to do a sample return to Earth. But something went wrong with the re-entry, and this little module, which was, if I remember rightly, it was less than a metre across, but it slammed into the, into the desert surface in Utah because its parachutes got tangled up or something. And it actually fractured the... Uh, the casing of this, uh, of, of, of the spacecraft. Nevertheless, the scientists were able to extract information from 
the inside and it turns out that they found glycine uh, among the other things there but of course there's always now been uh, doubt cast over that by the fact that it, it was open when it hit the earth and this could have been contaminated maybe it's been contaminated that's right but the fact that we've now got 67p showing um, unequivocal signs of glycine that suggests that the built two samples were also authentic glycine um, yeah, it's look, it's a very exciting news. Um, it suggests that these amino acids are everywhere. And of course, the uh, the the inference is that if <clears throat> um, if comets coming into the Earth and, and the comets are made from the raw material of the solar system, they're 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 icy objects that have never been heated. Um, they contain molecules that probably themselves formed actually in space in what we call giant molecular clouds and then got basically swept up by these comets as the as the sun was forming and, and the planets 4.6 billion years ago. But it suggests that uh, that they're everywhere, that amino acids are everywhere and the building blocks of life might be very common throughout the universe, which of course is great news for astrobiologists who are Indeed. looking for life elsewhere. It certainly adds a lot of weight to the potential for life being way you know more common than we could ever imagine uh indeed that's right um uh that you know if if this is common throughout the galaxy uh then every solar system might well have this reservoir of of uh not just molecules actually there are also interesting elements i, I meant to mention that um this particular research also found phosphorus in the in the comet's atmosphere and that's a key element uh in living organisms so it's it's really um uh, it's very encouraging for the idea that maybe life is common throughout the universe, but that's a question that we, uh, which remains to be answered. Yes, yes, and uh, everyone's hopeful we'll find an answer to that sooner rather than later. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, our next topic, Fred, is that of... Uh, uh, school students, Australian students, uh, who uh, will soon be involved in experiments with the International Space Station. What's this about? Yeah, this is fantastic. Uh, it's a great uh, initiative that will um, basically encourage students in high schools to look at the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and mathematics uh, in, a, in a new way, because there is direct involvement with the International Space Station. Um, space, of course, excites everybody, uh, particularly school students. Uh, it excited me when I was a school student, and I, I haven't been, stopped being excited since then. And that was about 150 years ago. So it's <laughs> a long-lived long uh, long phenomenon. But um, a 23-year-old um, student at the University of New South Wales... Uh, she's doing uh, aerospace engineering. Uh, her name is Solange Kunin. I think that's how her name is pronounced. Uh, she and a colleague of hers uh, have taken the idea of building a, a syllabus for schools uh, that actually involves an experiment that can be done in space. And what they've done is they've uh, they've set this thing up. Uh, I think it's still a work in progress. There is still some... Uh, funding needing to be uh, raised, but what they what they're doing is they are um, building. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, it's called Cube Rider, but it's a device that has actuators and sensors and things of that sort that ca can be and indeed will be in November taken 
to the International Space Station. So it will reside on the International Space Station. So that is the first part of the deal. The second part is that then these high school students are, who are being involved in the Cube Rider project, that's Q-U-B-E-R-I-D-E-R, -E -E by the way. Uh, it's got a Q at the beginning. Um, the, uh, the people who are involved with that will write code. Will, they'll write software that can be used, uh, can be uploaded to this uh, device that is gone to the space station so that people can actually do experiments. And some of the experiments that have been suggested uh, include um, things like, you know, the uh, uh, biological issues about how things grow. Uh, it includes physics problems like trying to detect the time dilation that you get from the fact that the space station orbits uh, 400 kilometers above the Earth. Time dilation is a, a prediction of Einstein's general theory of relativity. It says that time slows down in a gravitational field. Mm. It's well established as um, uh, as, a, as you know a piece of of scientific work, but there's there's nothing like a student trying to trying to detect it as well. So it's a great initiative. Um, I, as I said, it's um, it's something that's still a work in progress. Uh, I'm really interested in how they're taking this up to the space station. I think they've got uh, space booked on one of the SpaceX uh, launches that will take place later in the year, um, uh, and I I think um, hopefully they've. They found the money for that. Uh, I don't know whether you know, Andrew, but um, the cost per kilogram to get things into orbit is about um, 10,000 US wow. per kilogram. Uh, it varies depending on who's doing it. It's actually a bit cheaper for SpaceX, but that's the average, average price. And of course, that's one reason why we get so excited when you and I talk about the idea of reusable space vehicles for uh, for getting things into orbit, because that's the way to bring that cost down by reusing the the, the hardware. Yeah, and with India getting into the market, which we talked about last week, uh, yeah, yeah. it might bring the price down even more. Even more, that's exactly mm -hmm. right. The other side to this story, which um, I think is a very, very big positive, is that uh, it's it's also aimed at getting more students involved in uh, the, these difficult uh areas of study, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, that there seems to be a real shortfall in terms of numbers going to university to study in these fields. Why would that be? Is it just too hard? It's, um, there are many reasons, Andrew, and of course it's one that we in the science community look at very, very hard, uh, very, very closely. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> we take a close look at this because, because that's the future in terms, of, um, you know, in terms of our scientists and our engineers. It's these... Uh, kids who are now looking at STEM subjects uh, as a possibility, uh, who are going to be the, the ones who will make the breakthroughs in coming years. Uh, the, 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 it is certainly true that uh, there is a sort of hard edge to some of these sciences um, in that they're not kind of fuzzy subjects that you can, um, you, you know, you can um, be creative about in the sense that uh, you can think sort of... Um, uh, in in a very broad space with the stem subjects you are relatively restricted in terms of um, what works and what doesn't there is still however an opportunity to be creative once you've got the basic tools a few mathematical tools and things like that then you can really start thinking outside the box and bringing new ideas like this uh, this group of students has done mm. uh, and one of the other things I think that has been lacking uh, in in terms of advising students about going into these subjects is really what's the career prospects at the end of it. 
And we have to make sure that when people do go, and, and they, these are very gifted children often, uh, when they do go and choose the STEM subjects, there has to be a career pathway for them, which hasn't been obvious until now, although I think that is now improving. I think we're seeing a broader uh, avenue of, of ways that um, kids can go and make a real contribution in technology, engineering, science, and indeed mathematics. And if I can be kind of negative, uh, a lot of these jobs out of university are government paid positions, and we all know how big a pitfall it can be <laughs> working yeah. uh, in a, an environment where you require funding from uh, from the likes of government. So it, it does um, does add to the difficulty of, of gaining that kind of employment. But, you know, we still need these people. We still need these jobs. We, we need to keep learning, don't we? Yeah, we do. That's right. And, and there are huge opportunities in the private sector as well. It's, um, it's not just governments and, and universities. They're the, uh, the, the most um, enlightened companies see their future based on this kind of, you know, this kind of education uh, coming out of the schools and colleges. Mm, okay. We'll watch with interest as always. This is Space Nuts with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and Andrew Dunkley. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to look at uh, uh, an experiment that's, um, that's taking place on the International Space Station, I believe. Uh, this is um, a, a very uh, interesting um, way of, of adding room to, um, to a spacecraft in the form of an inflatable uh, kind of uh, add-on, if you like. <laughs> um, it, it, it looks weird. It is weird. But uh, it looks like it might be a uh, very um, practical way of... Uh, of of giving people space in space. Space in space, that's right. So I have to say, it does seem counterintuitive, doesn't it? When we, uh, when we think of things like space junk, uh, to have an inflatable uh, module that people can live and work in. Uh, but it's not a new idea, Andrew. There is a company in America uh, called Bigelow Aerospace, run by uh, an entrepreneur, actually a billionaire who made his money with a hotel chain, the Big Bigelow Hotel chain. His name's Robert Bigelow. He has been a champion of inflatable modules uh, for well over a decade. In fact, back in the mid-2000s, I think it was 2006, he launched two test modules called Genesis. Genesis I, 1 yes, I remember and Genesis that. 2, yeah. And they um, are still in orbit. So, you know, they've, they've done pretty well. Um, what's happened now is that um, Bigelow and NASA have teamed up with the idea of testing uh, basically extensions, as you said, extendable modules uh, on the International Space Station. So this thing, which is certainly not large, it's only the size of a, a small cupboard, um, it's called the BEAM. Uh, the BEAM is an acronym for the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module. Uh, that uh, went up uh, about a month ago, actually, on one of the uh, um, SpaceX uh, uh, supply missions to the International Space Station. And it was deployed um, a week or so ago uh, on, uh, on the space station itself. So what happened is this, this module uh, in its deflated state was actually secured to one of the one of the ports on the on the space station of which there are many uh you know one of the um basically one of the airlocks and uh that um uh, that then once it was all fixed on uh, that then allowed it to be inflated uh, i have to say that the inflation uh, did not go um quite according to plan uh 
Uh, it seemed to take, it was supposed to happen in minutes, but um, uh, it seemed to take many, many hours. And that there was, it's, it's, not, it's not so obvious to find it now, but there was a lovely picture of the astronaut, uh, a guy called Jeff Williams, who was charged with the responsibility for inflating this thing. There's this lovely photograph of him. Um, clearly kind of sitting somewhere in the space station or floating somewhere in the space station, arms folded, looking absolutely fed up because <laughs> you're sitting there for hours waiting for this thing to, to inflate. Uh, but it did, in, in, in the end, it did actually, uh, it did inflate okay. And so we've now seen pictures of the expandable room. Uh, it's not going to be used for, uh, you know, for... for uh, activities uh, connected with the space station. It really is just a test. It will remain sealed for most of the time, but it will be uh, mission controllers on the ground who will be checking the pressures and temperatures and radiation levels and things of that sort within this module just to make sure that it works as advertised. So um, people, humans, uh, people on the space station will, will very seldom go into it, but they will actually... Uh, be able to do that if if necessary. Um, I, I think the main thing is to to get the data back and test whether it's working or not. Yes, and the practicality of something like this for long haul travel uh, that that might be the future for it. It, it is. Uh, in fact, Bigelow himself, his uh, motivation is um, orbiting hotels uh, with um, you know with with uh, these modules actually used as the as the main structure. They're, they're not um, they're, they're not um, like balloons where you know if something hits them they just go pop. These things are they're multi multi um, layer fabric, the kind of stuff that a spacesuit is made of, but probably even more armored. They've got Kevlar in and all kinds of things like that. And actually, it's suggested that if a if a micrometeorite or something hit one of these or a piece of space junk, it might actually be better than if it hits an aluminium module because that just makes a hole. If you make a hole in one of these fabric devices, then there's a chance that, um, that the way the fabric's um, the way the fabric's constructed, it will actually self-seal at some level. So oh. uh, really encouraging stuff. Uh, Bigelow's got um, a, a launch booked, I think it's in 2020, for his big uh, space inflatable space module, which has 330 cubic meters of volume, it's a huge thing. Uh, that's been under development for some time now. So that'll be very interesting to see what what that's like. Indeed, yes. Uh, I, I still find it difficult to get my head around the time scales of development in uh, in space technology, but. You have to be patient when you're working in this you do, industry. Absolutely. That's right. Fred, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. And uh, we will chat again next week. Uh, it's a great pleasure, Andrew, as always, and uh, look forward to talking again. That wraps us up for another week on Space Nuts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, add your comments and your thoughts. We're always uh, adding new stories to the Facebook page as well as the things we talk about on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye on it and tell your friends and spread the word. And, uh, yes, we will catch you again next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco... 
I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.